Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. The Christian and his government. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll show us from your word what it means to relate to the government, we as believers in Jesus Christ. Show us what the true way is according to your word. We ask you to remove from us any misconceptions and any false assumptions we have. We ask you to guide our thoughts that we might submit them to your word. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, whenever we discuss the subject of the Christian and his relationship to the government, there are always a few detractors, there are always a few dissenters who have their opinion as to what the matter should be. One of the opinions is that there should be no relationship between the Christian and his government, and in fact, there should be no government whatsoever. No government whatsoever. They believe in anarchy. They believe in chaos. They believe in living their life according to their own whims and fancies. They don't want anybody to tell them what to do. They don't want anybody to hold them accountable. They want to keep all of their money for their own purposes, often for the, the pleasures that they are seeking and the uh, vice, vices that they pursue, the, the vain things that they want to pursue in life, and they don't want anybody else to have any control over their life and their money. Those would be the anarchists. There is a form of that called libertarianism. Libertarianism, libertinism is another one. Libertarianism is one. There are different shades and varieties of these. But they basically want the government to do a few things that are important for for the sake of the the country. For example, keeping a military and having law courts and putting criminals uh, in prison and executing justice against criminals. They want that, but they don't want any laws, the libertarians, they don't want any laws guiding people's moral behavior. That is their personal behavior. If it has to do with stealing and uh, private property, they want the government to have laws against that. But if it has to do, for example, with marriage or sexual relationships, anything like that, they don't want the government to have any laws for it or against it. That's libertarianism. Then there is also tyranny. Tyranny. 
or despotism. That is shown most prominently in our day in socialism and communism. Socialism, communism, liberalism. Liberalism is basically today like socialism. And the difference between socialism and communism is communism uses force. It uses the, the gun to make sure you do what they want you to do. The socialists will use laws and penalties and fines and taxes in order to ensure that you do what they want to do. But these forms, liberalism, socialism, and communism, are tyrannies. They are tyrants. They force people to act in ways that are contrary to human nature for the benefit of the few. For the benefit of the few at the top of the food chain, the top of the food chain, in order for them to have all the wealth that they want and have everybody else live in subjugation and in misery. But between all of these, we have the Bible. The Bible sets forth for us a way of rulership, a way of governing societies that are contrary to all of these. In the Bible, we have the laws of God. We have the two great commandments, the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. The greatest to love God and the second greatest to love our neighbor as ourselves. And then we have the Ten Commandments, which give us greater detail as to how we should love God. In the first four of the Ten Commandments, how to love God, and the last six of the Ten Commandments, how to love our neighbor as ourselves. And then from those commandments, we have implications on what is good and righteous behavior and that which is wicked behavior, that which is iniquity, that which is transgressing the laws of God and detrimental and destructive towards one another. For example, in the Ten Commandments it says, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. There are many implications to that commandment. But then we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to murder? What does it mean to murder? Is killing plants murder? No, biblically speaking. Is killing animals murder? No, for self-defense or for consumption. If we kill animals, is that considered murder? No. If we kill another human being, an innocent human being, is that murder? Yes. When we take the life or kill an innocent human being, then that is murder. The rest of the Bible, outside of the Ten Commandments, gives us examples and explanations for us to know that that is the case. And an innocent human being is the key phrase. Notice, innocent human being. In the case of a criminal, if a criminal has committed a crime worthy of death, he is not innocent. Therefore, if he has committed a crime worthy of death, he ought to be executed by the governing authorities. We see this in Romans 13, 13 verse 4, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. The government does not have the authority by God to bear the sword for a vain purpose, just to keep it as a show or to use it as a butter knife. The sword is there for the purpose of lethal force, to execute criminals who are worthy of death. That is within the nation. But also, the government has the sword, in a biblical sense, to defend one's country, to defend one's country from external and foreign enemies who seek to undermine the rule of law, the laws the, the peacefulness of our own nation. Every nation 
has a military for the purpose of defending its borders. Every nation has law courts in order to defend its citizens, the victims and innocent people of their own country from the criminals within their country. So when lethal force is used by the governing authorities to kill people who deserve to be killed in warfare to defend one's country, or criminals who have committed crimes worthy of death, those are not instances of murder. Those are instances of justice. Murder is the taking of innocent human life. Now, in regard to the taking of innocent human life, at this time of year, we always remember and commemorate the death, the massacre of tens of millions. Literally, since 1973 in the United States, there have been the taking of innocent human life in the womb of 60 million babies. 60 million babies. That is larger than many nations around the world. That is larger than the population of many uh, nations near us in South America. That is larger than the population of several of our United States put together. The population of some of the biggest states in the United States put together. That's a huge number of people. And imagine the number of people who were not born because of that. The 60 million, if they had been born, and they had families and children. Imagine the, the, the loss of life that has been experienced in this country because of that bloodshed. This is wrong. And this is an example of how the government has gone overboard. The passage that we see here, the passage we have in Romans 13, 1-7, is explaining the proper role of government. We will also see from the implications of this passage that there are improper usages of governmental authority, improper or illegal, wrongful laws that governments put in place. The primary example from our reading of Scripture was Acts chapter 25. The Apostle Paul did not commit anything worthy of death, and yet there were people who wanted him to be put to death. The pagan Roman government knew that Paul did not do anything worthy of death. So they were trying to keep him alive and at the same time trying to please the, the mass, the crowd of the Jewish people who wanted him put to death. They're trying to walk on eggshells to take care of the situation in Acts 25. Yet they knew, though they did not know the Bible, they knew it was wrong to put an innocent man to death. And that's the thing that governments should not do. They should not put innocent people to death, and they should not enact any laws that are unjust towards its citizens. Romans 13. Let's see what the Apostle teaches us in this passage. In the first uh, 12 chapters, the Apostle Paul has already explained the gospel. He has explained the gospel of how we are delivered from our sins, we are delivered from wickedness, and now we practice righteousness. In chapter 12, he has explained our relationship to one another in the local church. And then in chapter 13, he will explain, 13, 1 to 7, our relationship to the government. And then verses 8 to 10, our relationship in society, love your neighbor as yourself, our relationship to one another. And then in verses 11 to 14 of chapter 13, our personal walk and our personal pursuit 
of morality and ethics and virtue in our personal Christian life. So, 13, 1-7, our relationship to the government. He says, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. We see here in verse 1 that he calls on every person, every person, every Christian, everyone who claims the name of Christ must have this attitude of subjection to the governing authorities. No one is excluded. We cannot be rogue in our mentality and our beliefs about the relationship of the Christian to the government. There are many people, many fanatical spirits out there who say that Christians should have nothing to do with the government. We should not obey the government in any way. We should live our own life, do our own thing, whatever is pleasing in our own eyes, whatever we want to do for ourselves and our families and our churches, but have nothing whatsoever to subject ourselves to the government. Any laws they enact, all the laws that they enact, the Christian has no obligation to them whatsoever. There are many people claiming the name of Christ who actually believe that. That is unacceptable. That is impossible because here he says every person should be in subjection to the governing authorities. To be in subjection is another way of saying obey. Just do what is said by the governing authorities. We have to obey them. That means there should be law and order. That means that there should be no confusion, no chaos. There should be peace and harmony in the way that our societies are governed, the way that we conduct ourselves. Whatever promotes disharmony, whatever promotes chaos and misery, ought to be rejected. Whatever, however, promotes law and order, subjection, should be pursued. He calls them here the governing authorities. Governing authorities And then it says that these authorities who are higher than us, higher in rank than us, because God has granted it to them, he says twice here in verse 1 that there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. People can easily say, no, no, these people are pagans. These people are unbelievers. These people do not know Christ. These people do not follow the Bible. These people are wicked themselves. They get drunk and they they do this or that. They are wrong. So why should we listen to them? Well, the apostle tells us that they are governing authorities. And notice, in this case, in the case of the Romans, The Roman Empire was a pagan empire, primarily, and at the time, in this first century, it was a pagan empire. They worshipped idols. They had nothing to do with the Bible. They despised Christians, and some of the emperors were ruthless and brutal against the Christian church. They had nothing to do with it, and they, in fact, opposed it and worked against it. However, the apostle says to the Christians... Even though you have a pagan, a pagan royal system, a dynasty, we don't, there was no democracy, there was no republic, it was really, it was a kingship. There was the Caesar, the emperor. That's how they ruled. Even in that situation, in that situation, he still says that they are governing authorities 
and that even they are from God and established by God. Because to the extent that the unbeliever, the pagan, obeys and does what is right, he's doing it according to the will of God. The government itself, the institution of the government, is from God. The next question then is, how is the government acting? Are they doing it in the right way? But the fact that they are there, appointed by God, is very clear in verse 1. Even when it is an unbelieving, pagan, polytheistic, idolatrous, immoral government. To the extent that they're supposed to do their duty and they are there, they are there for the purpose of doing God's will. So we should conform our will to their will when they obey. Even Jesus taught this in John 19, 11, when he faced Pontius Pilate before he was crucified and he was being interrogated by Pilate. Jesus said to him, you would have no authority unless it had been granted to you from above. You, Pilate, you know nothing about these Jewish laws. You don't know anything about this conflict between me and the Jewish people. But you have the power of execution, but you would not have no authority except it came to you from above, from God in heaven. Jesus makes that known to Pontius Pilate. So, we ought to recognize that ourselves. And not only recognize that, but not dare oppose it. Verse 2. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. The apostle says that if we resist this authority, if we oppose this authority, we are opposing the ordinance of God, the law of God, the precepts of God. We are opposing God because God has ordained through this ordinance of government that we should obey it. And if we do not obey it, we oppose it and we resist it, we will receive condemnation upon ourselves. This condemnation is twofold, I believe. This condemnation is a twofold condemnation. Proverbs chapter 20, Proverbs 20, 26 says, A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the threshing wheel over them. This is metaphorically speaking of punishment. A wise king, whether he is a believer or an unbeliever, he, if he's a wise king, he will winnow the wicked, separate the wheat from the chaff. The wicked are the chaff. He will winnow the wicked and drive the threshing wheel over them. He will crush the wicked. He will make sure that they are subjugated, that they do not have influence, that they are not perpetrating evils against the innocent people of the society. A righteous king will do that. So if we oppose the ordinance of God, God will send the authorities against us to punish us. That's the implication of Proverbs 20, 26. But also, there is another implication. Matthew 26, 52. Jesus said, He who takes up the sword will die by the sword. He who takes up the sword will die by the sword. Meaning that if we take up the sword, if we take up lethal force, 
and perpetrate that lethal force against an innocent person, somebody who does not deserve to, to die, contrary to the laws of the country, contrary to the governing authorities, we take lethal force up against someone else who is innocent, then we will die by the sword. He who takes up the sword will die by the sword. The government has the authority to condemn us and punish us in that way. But there is another sense in which people here will receive condemnation, and that is eternal condemnation, eternal punishment. Why do we say that? We say that because he who keeps the whole law, yet stumbles in one point, has become guilty of all. James 2.10. We say that because of James 4.17 also. To one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. It is sin worthy of a curse, worthy of a uh, condemnation. Even Galatians 3.10. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Cursed is one who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. So if we concoct a system, if we fabricate a system of government or rejection of government that allows for us to behave in ways that are contrary to the laws of God that are manifested in government, we receive just condemnation from God. Just condemnation from God. This is necessary to say because there are people within Christianity who say, that we ought not even to use this chapter of Romans to support the Christian's submission to the government. They don't even want anything to do with this chapter of Romans, and they say we cannot and should not interpret this passage in light of our current situation in the United States of America, and for that matter, any other nation of the world. We should not use Romans 13 at all. They conveniently say that this passage has nothing to do with our current circumstance. However, it does. It does, and this passage is consistent with other passages of the Scriptures that call on us to be in subjection to the extent that the government does the will of God. And if we do not, there are eternal spiritual consequences. There is eternal condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Why is it that we need to fear the rulers if when the rulers enact good and righteous laws, we, we obey those laws? We should not fear for those good laws when they are enacted, they are put in place for the purpose of helping us maintain a lawful, orderly, just, righteous society. We should not be afraid of them. We should not be afraid whatsoever. So whenever we are doing evil, we will have an evil conscience. And we will have a conscience that's very sensitive whenever authorities are around. Who, in these days, will be afraid of the police? except those who are dealing in drugs, except those who are drunk in the, in the, and in the presence of a police officer, against those who are amassing weapons and ammunition and things in order to perpetrate 
crimes against the police. This is an example of what Paul is meaning here. They're not a cause of fear for good behavior. Don't be afraid of the police. If you're going about your your way, doing righteousness and justice, you're being fair and honest with your dealings with people and even your relationship to the police and the government. But when you are doing evil, your conscience pricks you, and then you are afraid in front of the police. That's the kind of thing he's speaking of here. Don't be afraid of them, because they're not there to attack you. uh, They are there for evil. They are there to do things against evil people, not against people who are doing good. And, in fact, if you do good, you are consistent in doing good, you will have praise from the same. Notice that whenever in our own country there are people who are promoting harmony, lawfulness in our society, whether it's individuals, whether it is businesses, whether it is churches, what happens? We'll get a newspaper report or they'll be brought uh, to the White House or to to the uh, governor's mansion and people will be told, these people are doing good for our country. They are doing good for our state. They are doing good for our community. They do that with, of course, politicians have different motives, but at least they do that so that we see an example of somebody doing good and somebody being rewarded for doing good because his name is mentioned, his face is, is, is posted, his business is, uh, is, uh, is receiving, receiving notoriety, So all of that is good, and it's good for the people doing the good. They're being rewarded for it because they're being praised for it. That should not be shunned. That should not be avoided. That should be the way that things are. We should have in front and center all the time for us those who are doing good and being good examples all around us. Not evil people in front of us, but but good people in front of us. Verse 4. He reiterates this by saying, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Observe here, twice he says, it is a minister of God. A minister of God. Not talking about spiritual ministers, pastors and elders, They're not talking in that sense, but talking in the sense of being a servant of God. The word minister in the original Latin language means to be a servant. So we also have in our country and other countries certain officials who are called ministers, minister of finance, minister of foreign affairs, minister of this or that. They're called that because they are appointed as servants in those capacities for the benefit of their nation. In this case, the Apostle Paul tells us that it is a minister of God to you for good. What we just read in verse 3, when the government does good and helps the good people have harmony and lawfulness and, and safety and peace in their society, and they promote that, they are doing that as a minister of God. They do that as servants or ministers of God. So they're not doing that in mere human capacity. They're not mere human representatives. They are doing it as representatives of God. They minister 
on behalf of God when they do good and they promote the good and good people. And on the other hand, notice verse 4 also says that the government is a minister of God, but in the section on evil. That is, when the government is protecting good people from evil people, they are also ministers of God. It says in the second part of verse 4, But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Those who do evil in our society, when they do evil, the government is here called an avenger to bring about vengeance, justice, righteousness toward the one who did evil. The evil people are the ones who should have vengeance against them. The evil people are the ones who should be afraid. They are the people who should be running and scattering whenever they see the authorities. Because the authorities ought to be about their task as ministers of God to bear the sword for the benefit of the people, the innocent, good people, and as representatives of God. They bear the sword not for nothing, but for something, for good. The apostle makes it very clear here in verse 4 that if a crime is worthy of death, according to Acts 25.11, there is a concept in the Bible, even after the coming of Christ, and even after the death and resurrection of Christ, even after the day of Pentecost, even after the establishment or the confirmation of the new covenant by the blood of Christ, that there is still a place for the execution of criminals who have committed crimes worthy of death. That's why it says here, it does not bear the sword for nothing. They are not just pretentiously having the possibility of putting somebody to death. They ought to put people to death who are worthy of death. Acts 25, 11. They have that capacity and they ought to exert it whenever they see people perpetrating evils that are worthy of death. And of course, there should be just retribution or as the um, legal scholars and theologians call it, lex talionis. Lex talionis. The law of retaliation should be according to the nature of the crime. If it is a minor crime, then there should be a minor penalty, something that is equal retribution or just retribution for the minor crime, whatever the minor crime is. Or if it is a major crime, whatever that major crime deserves as a just retribution for that crime. And in the category of major crimes, we have to include and never exclude the possibility that the one who perpetrated this evil major crime is worthy of death. That's why the government has the sword, to put those criminals to death. Verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection. It is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Now he gives a twofold reason. A twofold reason. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection. Necessary to obey for these two reasons. Not only because of wrath. That is, the wrath of the government. Not only because 
we ought to obey not only because the government might punish us, and that is true, and the fear of punishment is a deterrent to evil. The fear of punishment is a deterrent to evil. People say these days that punishment or the fear of punishment or the fear of execution is not a deterrent to evil. Actually, the Bible says it to the contrary. Right here it says, Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, because they might inflict their wrath on us, the avenger of of the government, might inflict their wrath to penalize us and to punish us. Here Paul is acknowledging that that is a deterrent, and that is one reason. And to explain that further, when punishment occurs in Deuteronomy 13, it says, in 13.11, then all Israel will hear and be afraid and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. Deuteronomy 13.11. Another one is in Deuteronomy chapter 19. 19, and it says, Deuteronomy 19 and verse 20. When punishment has been inflicted, According to the nature of the crime, it says, Deuteronomy 19.20, And the rest will hear and will be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. There God acknowledges and tells us straight that, yes, the fear of punishment is a deterrent to evil. That is true in the family. That is true in the church. That's true in society. Of course it is true. But there's a second reason. Romans 13, 5 says, but also for conscience sake. Also for conscience sake. We have consciences, according to Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. We have consciences that God has given to each of us. We have consciences, whether we are Christians or non-Christians, whether we hold to the gospel of Christ, or whether we hold to any other religion or philosophy, we have consciences from our birth that God has given to each of us and that our conscience tells us what is right and what is wrong. Tells us when we are being honest and when when we are being dishonest. Tells us about all kinds of things according to the nature of the commandments and the Ten Commandments. Our consciences tell us that. Who wants to live with an evil, guilty, miserable conscience day by day? Nobody. Even unbelievers, unless they are so brazen and stubborn in their sin, they will not want to live that way. And what do they do to beat down their conscience so that they keep practicing evil? They keep doing it again and again. They keep lying to themselves. They keep denying it. They keep practicing the same evil and convincing themselves that it's not evil, but that it's good. They have to do that to be able to live. Otherwise, they could not live. Nobody can live day by day with a guilty, miserable, pricked conscience. They have to do something to overcome it. And the apostle here tells us, do it for conscience sake too. You know, based on the word of God, and based on your own conscience, what is right. So just do what's right. And don't live a guilty, despondent, miserable life day by day, knowing that you are disobeying God, 
the word of God and perpetrating evils against the government and against victims, innocent people, your neighbors. Don't do that. But live a clean, clear life with a good conscience. That's the way we ought to live day by day. Verse 6. Verses 6 and 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. For because of this. Because of this is because of everything he has explained about our relationship to the government. Because the government has a lawful place, because the government has a, a way that is ordained by God for them to execute their responsibilities, because of that, they need to do that full time. They need to do that as employment. And in fact, they need to be paid. They need a salary. They need a wage. They need income because they need to live. They need to eat and they need to have housing and they need to feed their families. So for this purpose, it says, for because of this, because of this reality of a legitimate place for the government, you also pay taxes. It tells us we pay taxes for that reason. So that they can be employed as being servants of God and they can devote themselves to this very thing. They ought to be about devoting themselves for the practice of justice and righteousness in the land. They are servants of God. He brings up that word again with using another phrase, servants of God. As he said earlier in verse 4, they are ministers of God. In verse 1, they are from God and by God. Now he says they are servants of God. They are there to serve the will of God in this physical, visible, legal, governmental capacity. They are there for that purpose. Therefore, they ought to be paid and they ought to receive taxes from us for that purpose. Jesus reiterates this point in a couple of passages. In Mark chapter 17, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 17, Matthew 17, verse 24. Matthew 17, 24. And when they had come to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs and poll tax? Or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And upon this, his saying, upon his saying, from strangers, Jesus said to him, Consequently, the sons are exempt. But lest we give them offense, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a stater. Take that and give it to them for you and me. A stater was equivalent to the tax, the two drachma tax for two individuals. So Jesus performs a miracle. There's a, a coin there in the fish's mouth. And he says, go pay the tax. Jesus, therefore, endorses the legitimate place of the government and of the paying of taxes. The two drachma one. Also in Matthew, Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, 15 to 22. Matthew 22, 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, 
We know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they marveled, and leaving him, they went away. Now, this conspiracy to trip up Jesus and to make him say something against the government did not work. In fact, Jesus said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus understood that there was a place for the government and for them to be employed by the tax money of the people for the legitimate place of the government. We have established the fact that taxes are necessary for the government to fulfill their God-given duties, but we have not said how much of taxes. We have not said how much of taxes. There comes a place when the government takes so much away from the people that the people are brought down to servitude, that the people end up being slaves of the government instead of beneficiaries of the government. When it comes to that point, then the government is taking too much of our taxes away from us. They are enslaving us and they are enriching themselves. We have an example of this in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 5, Nehemiah 5, 14 to 19. Nehemiah was a governor of Judea in the time of the Persians. The Persian Empire had him be the governor of his own nation, of the nation of the Jews. And it says in 5.14, Nehemiah 5.14, Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. And I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me, and once in ten days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet... For all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. Remember me, O oh, oh my God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. Jeremiah is, or, excuse me, Nehemiah is an example of a governor who understood that there is a difference between receiving taxes and exploiting the people. He did not want to exploit the people and make them his slaves. He kept the boundaries intact. All governments should do this. 
the governments that practice tyranny who take taxes and money and exploit the people are numerous and many all around the world. They do that. These people are despots and tyrants. No government should do that. Neither our government should do that. They should not take more than what is necessary. Another point of clarification. Today, we find that in our land and many other lands, governments take tax money in order to give it to other people who do not deserve that money, who do not work to obtain a livelihood, who do not work to obtain their own earnings. These are lazy people, they are gluttons, they are drunkards, and they are exploiting those of us who have more money. The government exploits us, we who have more, and gives it to other people who don't have what we have, but does not expect those people to work and to earn. Redistribution, socialism, Marxism, liberalism, many names for what this is. But this is contrary to the Word of God. Tax money should not be taken from us and given to people who are derelicts. Entitlement programs have no place in the Bible. It should be first the individual working, Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. First example, the individual himself should work. Leviticus 19, 9. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. The people here... The needy and the stranger, they were supposed to work in the field to get their own food. It has nothing to do with setting up a governmental office, standing in line, writing your name on the register and saying, I, woe is me, I don't have a job, and I'm not going to get a job, therefore you, government, give me, job, uh, uh, give me money taken from other people, taken from tax money. There's nothing like that right here. The individual is supposed to work. Even in the family situation, the family should help another poor member of the family when there is a legitimate need. When there is a legitimate need. Not just willy-nilly and not because we want to be sugar daddies and Santa Clauses to other members of the family. Not for those purposes, but for the purpose of helping one in a legitimate circumstance. We read this in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 16. Here is an example of a widowed mother or grandmother. When we have a widowed mother or grandmother, the children and grandchildren are obligated to help their widowed grandmother with whatever is going on in their life, whatever needs that they have. They are the ones obligated, the children and the grandchildren, to take care of their own family, according to 1 Timothy 5. In fact, he says, if anyone, 1 Timothy 5, 8, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Those who are derelict in their own families 
have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. They are worse than pagans. Even pagans have enough sense of conscience and natural law to understand that they should take care of their parents in old age. When father or mother passes away and the one is left alone, they need help. They need to be around them and they need to help them with their living circumstances. That's what the apostle says. Then, after individual and after family, according to the same passage, 1 Timothy 5, then the church kicks in. Then the church should help only if the widow is a widow who meets godly qualifications, age qualifications, and godly qualifications. 1 Timothy 5, verse 9 says, Let a widow be put on the list, the list of help from the church, only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and so forth. If she has a reputation for godliness, she has the minimum age requirements, and all of the the specifications mentioned there, then the church should help. Not just because she suddenly becomes a widow, and she says, woe is me, and comes to the doorstep of the church and asks for money. It shouldn't happen like that. It needs to happen methodically and carefully according to the Word of God. And notice, based on Leviticus 19, based on 1 Timothy 5, there is no place here for the government to give handouts. There's no place. The government should not be doing that. They should be making sure that our law courts and, and uh, police personnel are well-equipped. They should be making sure our military is well-equipped and everything that's associated with those two main branches, those two main obligations of the government, and leave the rest alone. Taxes are not for the purpose of helping other people whom they define as poor in order to keep them poor and miserable. It's not that way. Lastly, verse 7, Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. The key word here is what is due them. When those among us, especially in this context, the government, requires tax or custom, then tax or custom should be paid to them. Custom is more when there are foreign uh, products being brought into the country. In that sense, customs are paid for that. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We should fear the people around us, fear the government around us, because we should not sin against them and sin against God. And when they are doing what's right and good, we should honor them. Call them by whatever titles they need to be called. Address them respectfully. Speak to them respectfully. Give them the due honor that they deserve. This is the Christian's relationship to his government. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.